Google this article, it's, it's actually funny to read some of the responses. Um, in the article, some people think it's going to be a mediator or, or a meteor one day that's going to crash into the earth and destroy everything. Um, others say, well, eventually the sun is going to die out, or maybe it's a global pandemic, some disease that we can't stop, or maybe it's going to be a nuclear war, um, or maybe zombies. I don't know if any of you have seen the World War Z film yet. I mean, there's lots of visions, right, and, and theories about how the world is going to end. And I think as a culture, we're, we're fascinated by this. I think we always, uh, as people, have been fascinated about how the world is going to end. I think we feel the fact that we're in a story and that, that the story has an end, or at least this chapter has an end. I mean, you, you see this in, in lots of different films. One of my favorites, Dr. Strangelove from the 60s, is, is one vision of how the world might end um, from WALL-E, the Planet of the Apes. What about um, Armageddon with Bruce Willis? All very different visions for how the world would end. But we're always intrigued by these, aren't we? And even though it's sort of easy to brush off and ignore, how we answer that question, how and when will the world end, if we even take the time to consider it, maybe many of us haven't even really thought about it that much, it has deep implications. Because the way that we believe the world is going to end in the future challenges how we live here in the present I mean, just think about the big questions of human existence, right? Every one of us, thoughtful people, have to answer the question of, of, of who am I? Uh, where did I come from? How did I get here? And, and what, what was I made for, right? And, and how we answer these questions determines what we think right and wrong is. It determines um, what we think the purpose of a, of a human being is. Um, one of these questions that we always have to, to wrestle with, to answer as well, along with who am I, where did I come from, what, is, is where is all of this going? How is it all going to end? What's, what's the end of the story? And there's one truth that instantly infuses everything with meaning. And that is that God knows how it will end. You see, Christians believe that, that God is the author of history. That God knows how and when and, and why the world will end. And that he is the one orchestrating everything toward an end, toward, toward a telos, toward a goal, which he has planned. One of my professors in seminary always used to say to us in class, he said, Christians are, are roadies, not wheelies. That Christians are roadies, not wheelies. I mean, what does that mean? So he says, Christians are not wheelies. We aren't on this sort of Ferris, uh, or this kind of Ferris wheel, this carousel that just keeps going around and around and around. As you study Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, there's this sense of, of a cycle that, that never ends. It just keeps going, a cycle of reincarnation. And, and part of the goal of life is to finally get off of this wheel that just keeps going on and on and repeating. Now, Christians, on the other hand, are, are roadies. We're on a road that's going somewhere, that God has a purpose in history, and we're on a road that's journeying toward that, towards that. So Christians ultimately are roadies. We're not wheelies. And Christians believe that, that we're on that road, a path to somewhere, and that God has a goal in mind, and that God knows how it will end. And not only this, but I mean, we have to realize that in the end, only God knows the exact details of how this works out, right? You're, I'm not going to give you any dates this morning, don't worry. You know, I'm not going to be working out any calculations or putting any dates out there. Only God knows the details of this. But he does give us in his word a few broad strokes, some hints about where this is going. 
And actually, we're going to ask Daniel this morning those very questions that the Atlantic Monthly asked. How would Daniel, the prophet Daniel, would have responded to the editor's question, how and when will the world end? And we're actually going to ask Daniel three questions. How will the world end? When will the world end? And why does God tell us? Why does he tell us what he does? So how, when, and then why does God tell us what he tells us? You see, Daniel had all these crazy visions and dreams, and, and there's a whole lot of it as you read the text that even Daniel doesn't really fully get, which is comforting to me in a lot of ways. And, and so I just want to say this to kind of truth in advertising as we start off this morning. Don't expect a lot of clarity as we go through this about exactly what's going to happen at the end. But the truth that we can cling on to and that Daniel clinged on to is that God knows how it will end. He knows and so this morning, let's first look at the question of, of how will the world end? Um, if you, again, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. And uh, that's on page 750 in the Pew Bibles. And we're going to ask the question in these first four verses of how will the world end? Now, some of you, if you're familiar with the Bible, I know many of us necessarily aren't, but if you're familiar with the Bible this morning, if you're at all familiar with the book of Daniel, you may be scratching your head and saying, why did they pick Daniel 12 to talk about? I mean, isn't Daniel the great story of, of Daniel and the lion's den? And isn't that the book where there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace? You know, these are some great stories out of Daniel. Why did we pick Daniel 12? This seems really confusing stuff. And it is. But this passage, why we picked Daniel 12 this morning? Because this passage reminds us that every story, even the story that you and I are living out right now, has both a beginning and an end. And Daniel 12 shows, as all stories ultimately in the Bible show, that God is sovereign over all. That God is sovereign over time from beginning to end. And there's lots of places in the Bible that talk about the end, what is coming in the end. And, and this study of, of the end and what's happening in the end is, is called eschatology. It's a, a big theological word, eschatology. But it, the word eska, it's two Greek words. Eska means end, and then ology, of course, is the study of. So we have biology, all those kinds of things. So the study of the end things. And when we look at some of these passages in the Bible that talk about eschatology, the end of things, they use a wide variety of metaphors and images to describe what is going to happen. And this kind of literature, um, sometimes known as apocalyptic literature, it uses a lot of imagery. And so it's, it's not a genre of precision. It isn't like reading a, a history, an account of something that's happened where we know all the details. This is, the authors are getting impressions. It's very impressionistic and image-driven. So we lack precision. The authors, they aren't concerned with giving us all the details, but they are in, concerned with telling us who is in charge, who is doing this. But no matter where you look in Scripture, just about any time the end is mentioned, it comes with two sort of conflicting images. And they are an image of great pain and also of great joy. Image of great pain and great joy. And we actually see both of those here in the first few chapter, or verses here of Daniel chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of great trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In these verses, we both see the great pain and the joy. And in fact, Jesus in Matthew chapters 24 and 25 in the New Testament, in many ways is giving us a commentary on these verses from Daniel. Jesus, we know, is not only sort of the ultimate subject of Scripture, the one thing that the Bible is completely about, but Jesus is the ultimate interpreter of the Bible as well. And so as we look even into Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and we hear what Jesus says about the end, he uses the metaphor, I think, that combines both great pain and great joy. Jesus uses the metaphor of birth pains, and this is a metaphor that's beginning to gain a little bit more traction for me in my life as I have a wife who is, is five and a half months pregnant. And obviously I've never experienced this in Walt, but everything I read in the books and firsthand accounts that, that childbirth is incredibly painful, um, but also is followed by incredible joy. And so Jesus employs this metaphor to describe the end of time, that it comes with great pain, but then it leads into something beautiful, a new beginning, a new start. And so first, in verse 1, we see the great pain. It says, There shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since the time that there was a nation till that time. And this is what Daniel has been writing about, actually, for the last few chapters. So if you were to go back to Daniel chapter 10 and 11, he's already beginning. We're catching the very end of this. And he's describing all of the hardship that is coming. He says, The end will be characterized by pain and difficulty, and persecution, deception, wars, famines, Jesus adds to this in our understanding. And Daniel, he knew something about hardship and pain himself, right? I mean, he is a prophet in one of the darkest times of Israel's history, just like we've looked at with Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. And even as we've been reading through Ezekiel, this is a difficult time in the nation's history. And Daniel himself was captured as a teenager. He was forced into slavery, exiled to Babylon. He was thrown into the lion's den for praying to the one true God. You see, Daniel, he knew suffering. But he writes at the end of Daniel, chapter 12, that this is nothing compared ultimately to the suffering that's going to come at the end. You see, as Christians, we should never be surprised by suffering. And God's people all throughout history have always suffered, right? And as Christians who have a deep understanding of how broken the world is, who have such a robust understanding of what sin has done to each one of us, what it's done to the world around us, we should never be surprised that you and I, that humanity as a whole, suffers Honestly, in a world as broken as ours, we should probably be more surprised by the amount of comfort that we enjoy rather than the suffering that we experience. And what Daniel tells us is that as things move toward the end, that, that pain, that intensity is only going to get worse. But notice the language all throughout these verses of time. He says there will be a time of trouble. There's a set period. It's not going to go on forever. It's just going to be for a time. And the emphasis on that time language all throughout this text, and if you read Daniel 12, you see it over and over and over again, time, 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 is that God is in control. He's sovereign even in the midst of the suffering. And it's only for a time. And then there is great joy. 
Again, that's why the metaphor of birth pains is so perfect. At the end of this great pain, there will be a resurrection. We see that in verse 2, that there's going to be new life. The names of those written in the book will be delivered. They will be raised up as the dust from the earth to everlasting life. And if that's you, in the end, it will come with overwhelming joy. Now, if you look throughout the history of the church, you see different Christians at different times with kind of different emphases. And so the more difficult the experience of Christians in history, the more they look forward to the end. And the the more comfortable their experience, oftentimes it's harder to look forward to the end. So if you read um, accounts of even the slaves in the United States and the spirituals that they sung, there's a great longing for heaven. But for us, I think oftentimes we have it pretty good here. And the thought of heaven can almost seem kind of boring. I remember when I was a high school student, I was probably 15 or 16 years old and growing up in the church, and and I was helping to teach a Sunday school class. I think it was like a kindergarten class, and I was helping out to teach this class, and we were talking about heaven. And there was a little kindergarten girl in the class who was adamant that she did not want to go to heaven. And the reason she's like, she didn't want to leave her home or her family. She thought heaven would be boring. She loved her house, her life that she had. She's like, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to stay here with, with my family, what I have. She was convinced that she did not want to go to heaven. And as this 15-year-old high school student, I actually thought, man, she kind of has some good points. And I kind of struggled to answer this, this question that she had. I was trying to say how great this was, but I'm like, you know, I do love this life that I have. And the unknown of this future seems scary. But we have to remember that heaven isn't just a place of of sort of disembodied heart playing on clouds floating around for eternity. No, heaven is the new heavens, the new earth. It's deeply material that this matter that God has made, it's not going away. We'll have new bodies. It's a place of great joy and laughter and feasting and meaningful work and, and renewable rest. So even now there's times when I feel, man, how could it—my life seems so good now. Blessed with a great home and a great family and a great congregation. And when I start to get content just with this, I I remind myself that the best of what we experience now, it's just a signpost to the future. These are just foretastes of the good that is coming the best that we experience now is just a foretaste of, of what will be far better when the new heavens and the new earth is ushered in, when all that God intends for there to be is brought to completion. Now, what about those, though, who are not in the book? It's this trouble persists, and, and you see that everyone exists forever, but, but not everyone truly lives forever. Those who are not in the book, it says, will also be resurrected, but it will lead to shame and everlasting contempt, the text says. You see, those who rebel against God will continue to rebel against God, and they will want to rebel against God forever. And this is such a haunting picture of hell, such a haunting picture of the end, a a place of shame and everlasting contempt. And to me, in some ways, those are, those are actually worse images uh, than, than we typically think of hell as this place of fire or burning or torture. But do you know, I think we all know, that the most tortured we can feel is, is regret and contempt and shame. 
And the, the question for us is, is, is how could a loving God send someone to this everlasting contempt, this everlasting shame? Does he? Does he even do this? Is this book just so outmoded? Is this just no longer true? Well, here's the thing. Those who have spent their lives rejecting God, who have spent their lives telling God, I, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to be near you. I don't like you. I want to be far from you. Those are the people who experience this everlasting shame and contempt. And, and what we see is that, that heaven, by definition, is the place where, where God dwells, where the fullness of his presence is. And I think we can sort of think of, of heaven as this kind of hedonistic place where, where we have all these pleasures in paradise and it's a cosmic reunion among loved ones. But, but ultimately, heaven is the place where God's presence dwells and where everyone there loves him above everything else. It's a place where God is treasured above all things. That's what heaven is. It's a place of great joy and a place where people enjoy God's presence. And so no one who, who spends the majority, the, the, the whole of their lives wanting to be far away from God, rejecting him, is suddenly at the end going to somehow decide they want to be in the place where his presence is more full than anywhere else. See, God lets us go the way we have chosen. If you live a life rejecting God, then, then you get to spend eternity in a place where he isn't. He honors our choices. And although the idea of God's judgment is it's a hard pill to swallow, I don't like talking about it, I don't like thinking about it, but it, this book is so clear about it. It's true that it does give life meaning because it brings every action and attitude into something that matters, that, that God will vindicate what is right and he will judge what is wrong, that that there is meaning to what we do. So for those who are written in this book, we don't know exactly what this is, but for those who are written in this book with faith in God who rescues, they experience everlasting joy. For those who persist in rebellion, everlasting shame. And again, we don't know the details of all of this, but God knows. And ultimately, I trust him. Because here's the thing, that God is always consistent with his character. He is holy and completely loving. He's holy and completely just. He is holy and completely merciful. And everything that he does is consistent with his love, his justice, his mercy, his truth. You see, knowing something about the end makes a difference of how we experience the middle experience the present. And I was reminded of this actually Thursday night. My six-year-old nephew and four-year-old niece came over, David and Eden, and uh, we got to spend the evening with them. And one of these things, and you're going to probably be again with this, Bill, but we got to watch Star Wars together. I mean, how many Star Wars illustrations can I use, right? But we got to watch Star Wars together for the first time. And David and Eden, um, they've already seen Star Wars a lot of times, but we had never gotten to watch it together. And they're huge fans. I'm so proud of them. They love it. Um, even at four and six years old. And like I said, they've already watched it a ton of times. They love it. And, and because they have seen it so many times, they aren't scared of the movie. And they aren't scared even in the parts where it seems like all hope is lost. 
And so even at the end of the film, as Luke Skywalker's flying down the, the tunnel and, and he looks like he's about to be destroyed by Darth Vader, they aren't scared because they know that Han Solo is going to come in at the last second and rescue, right? Because they know the end, they aren't scared in the middle. But I remember their dad telling me, he's like, yeah, the first time we watched it, I had to kept telling them all throughout that now this is how it ends. Remember, this is how it ends. It's going to be okay. Good is going to triumph. You know, we don't know all of the exact details of how the story will end. But here in Daniel chapter 12 and in other places in the Bible, God gives us a few glimpses, some of the broad strokes. And ultimately what gives us hope during the time between now and the end is that we know the author of the story. We may not know exactly how he's going to fill out those final chapters, but if we trust the author of the story, then we can have great confidence in the end that's coming. God knows the end. But now on to our second question. When will the world end? And, and probably some of you thought, well, there wasn't a whole lot of clarity there on the how, Bill. And, and if you felt that, you're going to actually feel it all the more on the when. Um, but we all want to know, right? If, if we know that the end is coming, we know when is this going to happen? And, and in fact, even in, in the text, someone asks the question, when is this going to end? If you look at verse 6, someone in Daniel's vision says this. He says, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And in verse 7, a voice answers, and, it, and this is what the, the answer comes back. It says, it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. And when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. And then if you look down to verse 11, it says something about 1,290 days or three and a half years. And then it says in verse 12, the one who waits the 100 or 1,335 days, that's the one who is blessed. So the question is, when will the world end? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear here, right? It's a, it's a time, times, and a half a time. I'm surprised you didn't know that. Um, I mean, this is clear, right? It's, wait, you don't have any idea what it means either. Okay, well, that's good, because I don't. Um, and as I was reading the text this week, actually, verse 8 made me feel really good. If you look down to verse 8, this is what Daniel says. He says, I heard, but I did not understand. Okay, thank you. Glad that we're not the only ones. I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh my Lord, what will the outcome of these things be? In, in other words, Daniel is saying, God, this is really confusing. I mean, Daniel's experiencing this firsthand. And he's saying, I don't understand what's, what's happening here. What is this times and times and half a time? He's just saying, God, I, I don't know what, this, what you're even saying to me. I'm, I'm writing it all down. I'm recording it. But, but what's the outcome going to be? What's the point of this? And I actually think the response is interesting. It might not be what you'd expect. When Daniel says, what is the outcome going to be? He doesn't get more information. He doesn't get an explanation. Rather, he just gets instruction on how to live now. If you look at verse 9, the voice comes back and he says, Daniel, go your way, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So basically he says, look, Daniel, this isn't for you to understand fully. You just need to keep on living your life. He won't know when all this will happen, nor will anyone else. And ultimately, not even Jesus. Only God the Father knows, right? In the mystery of God's existence as Trinity, as, as one God, three persons, 
Jesus says, I don't even know when the time is going to come. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. He says, but concerning the day or the hour of the end, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. And this is why I've never understood. There's always been throughout history Christians who have determined that they are going to figure out the time. And, and I've never understood why people continue to persist in doing this, right? Because Jesus says, I don't even know. Only the Father knows. And so you get these people like Harold Camping, you know, just a, a few, oh, this is last year, right? He predicted these two times, it gets all this media coverage, and, and then it doesn't happen, and then he's like, well, actually, well, it was just a spiritual judgment. The real thing is coming later on this fall, and then it doesn't happen again. It's like, it's for as much as this guy might know his Bible, did he miss Matthew 24, 36, where it says, Jesus says, I don't even know. No one knows. Okay. So the Father is the only one who knows this. But you're probably thinking, Bill, can you help us out at all? Is there anything that we can know about this, about the when? Well, this is what our statement of faith says. I just thought I'd read it for you today. This is what, we, what our statement of faith says about Christ's return. It says, We believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. I love that last part. Let me just read that again. The coming of Christ, the time known only to God, demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Like we've said several times already, we don't know many of the details, but we do know some of the broad strokes. We live in a time period that kind of theologians refer to as the already and the not yet. And I have a little uh, timeline up here for you that just kind of shows where, where are we at in the progress of the story that God is writing. So on that far side there, you see those three dots. And that just kind of represents eternity in the past where God has existed always. And then at some point, he decides to create the universe, everything that you and I know, the stars, the moon, the world, you and I, he creates everything. And then the humans, the first humans, join in a cosmic rebellion against the one true God. And that's the event we know as the fall. And as the world plunges into darkness and as sin begins to invade, a rescue plan is put into effect. And then you have the first advent. This is Christ's first coming as a baby, 2,000 years ago, born in Israel, as this child, his first coming, and he dies on a cross, he rises from the dead, the empty tomb, and then he ascends to heaven, and where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us. That's what Matt talked about last week from the book of Hebrews. And then the next event on the timeline there, this flow of events, is, is the second advent, Christ coming, his return. And then his return will usher in this time period called the millennium, which will be followed by the final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. The new creation is when heaven and earth are joined forever, and God's people in Christ will live with God forever. This will extend in the other direction forever. So are you still with me? 
is any of this making sense? Are you still tracking it all? So, so where are we at on the timeline then? So we're in between that first advent and the second advent, in between the already and the not yet. We're in this time where some of God's promises have already been brought to completion. The Messiah has come, but there's also a time where these things haven't yet been fully brought to completion. The truth is that we don't know how close we are to the second coming. We just know that we are closer today than we were yesterday. And this is why our statement of faith says that we have a constant expectancy for this to come. Now, some of you probably checked out for the last two or three minutes when I was going through that timeline. It's okay. You didn't miss a lot, actually. But you're probably wanting to know why. Well, but why does this even matter? What's, what's the point? Well, here's the bottom line of what we need to know here about when is the world going to end. The question is that, or the, the answer here is, is that Daniel doesn't know. Um, that, that Jesus himself and the mystery of the Trinity doesn't know, only the Father does, which means that, that I don't know. It certainly means that, that you don't know um, when it's going to be. But the important thing for us to know about the when is that God knows. He knows, and he's bringing it about. So then the question is, is, why does God even tell us any of this? If we don't know that many details, why does he give us any details at all? And I love how one theologian puts it, he says, Jesus, Jesus is eschatological, remember that teaching about the end time? Jesus' eschatological teaching, like the prophets, is fundamentally, fundamentally ethical in its character and purpose. Jesus' eschatological teaching is fundamentally ethical in its character and purpose. Then he goes on, it is, he's never interested in the future for its own sake, but speaks of the future because it's impact on the present. Let me read that again. He is never interested in the future for its own sake, but speaks of the future because of its impact upon the present. And this is so important. The Bible's teaching on the future are always about the present. They're always about how we are to be living now. And that's why God tells us anything about this in the first place. So so why does he tell us? Well, I think for three reasons that we see right here in the text. First, he wants us to live faithfully. He wants us to live wisely and then he wants us to live normally in the present. So, so God doesn't tell us about the future to sort of satisfy our curiosity. Really what he tells us only raises our curiosity. He doesn't tell us just to give theologians stuff to debate about endlessly. He tells us about the future so that we would live faithfully, wisely, and normally right now. So first, that we would live faithfully. He tells us about the coming judgment, this, this resurrection at the end of time, in order that we would be faithful today to make sure that we choose life. Every one of us is on a trajectory. Every one of us, our lives, is heading in a certain direction. And this text reminds us of that, and it reminds us to live faithfully. It forces me to ask the question, am I headed on a trajectory toward everlasting life or everlasting shame? God wants us to know that there are two paths. We've seen this all throughout open here as we've journeyed along, that there are two paths, there's two ways, and they lead in very different places. Which path are you on? Who are you becoming? Are you becoming the kind of person who continually seeks God or continually rejects him? Only a path that's centered on Christ ends well.
This is not something that we earn, but is a gift that God offers to each one of us through his son, Jesus. Have you put your faith in him? Second, God tells us because he wants us to live wisely. And and did you see in verse 3 this language of wisdom that comes up? If you you look back up to verse 3, it says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And the word that's used for wisdom here, it's a a different word than what's ordinarily used for wisdom or wise. The word carries more of the idea of discernment, of paying attention, of being watchful. And Jesus picks up on this theme in in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, and and he tells these stories, these parables, and they all have to do kind of a similar theme of, of, of a master who leaves and goes away, and he's delayed for a long time, and what happens when he's gone? And, and after Jesus tells all these stories, he says this. He says, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when I will return. Jesus says those are the who are wise are the ones who obey him, the one who follow what he's called them to do. I mean, so what does it mean to live wisely for us? What does this look like? It, it means that we are to live as if Jesus is coming back this afternoon, but it also means living and planning as if he weren't coming back for a thousand years and holding both of those things in tension because we don't know when. It could be any minute or it could be 10 years, 20 years, a thousand more years. The, the Christian religious tradition uh, of, uh, known as the Shakers, um, who are renowned in the United States for their, their architecture, for their, their furniture, for their music, they have a maxim, and, and I think this captures so well our attitude that we should have. The, one of the Shaker maxims in the 17, 1800s, when they were at their, kind of their peak of, of development, was this. They said, do all your work as though you had a thousand years to live, and as if you were to die tomorrow. Do all your work as though you had a thousand years to live, as if you were to die tomorrow. And you see the quality of of that maxim in the craftsmanship, the the furniture, the buildings that they built have an enduring quality to them, and yet they lived as though they were to die tomorrow. Wisdom says that we should live like that. No matter when Jesus returns, our days are numbered. All of us are going to die at some point. And so we should live with the end in mind. Live with the end in mind. And yet, it could be a thousand years. And live as if it could happen any time, but, but plan as though it's a long way off. This expectancy doesn't mean that we don't save for retirement or, or plan for the future. Live normally. That's what Daniel is saying as well. Live normally. Yes, live faithfully, live wisely, but live normally. Again, in verses 9 and 13, this phrase, go your way till the end, is repeated several times. The world as we know it will end, but, but don't obsess about it, right? Don't, don't worry about it. Don't be constantly, our focus isn't to be on when and how and, and what's going to happen and is it just around the corner no, just live your life normally. Make plans for the future. Build families. And this goes back to our Jeremiah text. Live in the place where God has called you. Put down roots. Live normally, but live to the glory of God. Do the work that God has called you to. In your office, in your home, in your school, in your church, in our world, just keep going at this. And stay hopeful. Because God knows how it will end. Yes, we are on a long, hard road and at times it feels brutal. At times it feels overwhelming. We're confronted with the brokenness that's in each one of us, with the brokenness that's around us. 
And some of you may feel it so deeply right now that you are, are you're looking forward to an ending. You're looking forward. You're, you're begging Christ to come back. Come back now. So have hope. He is returning. He will make everything right. For those who know Christ, rest and joy and peace and relief, they are what is on the way. He will make it right. He will make me right. He will make you right. He will heal. He will bring all things to their good end. And no matter how ugly it gets, he can be trusted. And this is the truth that that is brought alive to our senses every time we celebrate communion. The Lord's Supper together. You see, for followers of Jesus, for those who know that he is the only hope of rescue, the end is not something to fear because we know that in the end there is a new beginning. There is a resurrection. We know that Jesus has died to remove all of our shame and everlasting contempt. All of that shame was placed onto him and we bear it no more. I love the song that we sang earlier this morning. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. This is the hope we have in Christ. See, Jesus, after he tells his disciples about the end in in Matthew's chapter 24 and 25, he says these words to them in Matthew chapter 26. Listen to this. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he handed it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this blood is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins And then listen to what Jesus says after this. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, there's a day coming when we will celebrate with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth at the end. But until then, as we live faithfully and wisely and normally, we celebrate communion as a tangible reminder, as a foretaste of that day. We celebrate communion here at Christ Community. You don't have to be a member at our church to participate in that. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you sing the words of Rock of Ages, that, that this is, he is the only hope that I have, then you are welcome at the table to celebrate with us. When you come, it works best if you kind of come out these side aisles and and then return through the center aisles. There's communion stations here in the front, too, and then there's two in the back. And and this communion station in the back has gluten-free communion elements available. So as you come this morning, come knowing that this is a foretaste of the one who writes the story of the end, who knows the details, and who loves you immensely who has died to remove the everlasting shame and contempt that haunts you. Come to the Lord's table when you're ready.